Well, it's good to be back behind the pulpit. Uh, it's been an interesting seven months, to, to say the least. So I definitely do appreciate and thank you for all the prayers during, again, a very interesting and peculiar ordeal, to say the least. But I will say, with all that's gone on, it certainly has forced me to think about what we're going to be, pre um, what I'm going to be preaching on today, which is trials, adversity. It's certainly something that I think none of us are, are immune to all, we've all dealt with. And I wanted to spend some time really talking about that today. But before we begin, let's first go to God in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful that you have brought us now to this point where we get to go into your word and we get to learn from it. Lord, I ask that you may humble us so that we may grasp and understand those truths that are contained in your word. I pray, God, that you may give us eyes to see and perceive what your word teaches, ears, Lord, to hear and understand, and hearts to humbly receive the truths contained in O oh God. Again, we thank you for this moment and this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, as I mentioned, today I'm going to be spending my time talking to you about, again, something that we've all dealt with, especially over the last few years, talking about trials. I'm talking about those type of trials that involve suffering, testing, persecution, and difficulty. I'm talking about those type of trials that causes many people to become anxious, to become depressed, fearful, even angry. I'm talking about those type of afflictions that come upon us suddenly and completely changes our course of action in life. And what I really want to focus on today is not necessarily the what of the trials, or in other words, what are trials, but more so the why. Like, why do they happen? Why are we dealing with them? You know, especially for us as Christians, sometimes trials can be really perplexing. I mean, we know, especially in the Reformed community, we know that we're not immune to affliction or difficulties because of our faith, but you know, sometimes it just doesn't feel right when we as believers are dealing with trials. You know, you hope to pray to God and, you know, the hope is that as soon as you pray to God, all of a sudden those trials go away. And oftentimes that's not what happens. Many times those trials, those, that affliction can be prolonged. And even if you're in constant prayer, it seems like there's no reprieve in sight. And when that happens, sometimes that can even cause some of the most committed Christians to question, man, is God there? Is he really listening? So I think it's important for us to consider some of those reasons why it is that God brings about trial and affliction in our lives. Now, my original intention was for this to be one sermon, but as I was preparing for this during the week, there's just so much to talk about, and I did not want to shortchange this topic. So this will probably end up being anywhere from two to four sermons to really go over, as I see in the scripture, all the different reasons why it is that we deal with affliction. And my hope is that as we look through the scriptures, and we look through many of the reasons why trials happen, that it causes us to reflect on our lives, reflect on the providence of God, fix our trust in him, and move forward without falling into depression, into anxiety, into anger, into bitterness, or even despair. Because let's face it, the last two years have been pretty rough. Even in, in this tiny little church, we've dealt with a lot. And it's not just even here in this church, Look at the globe overall. I mean, we're dealing with the coronavirus still, school shootings, wars, inflation, monkeypox. 
And I'm just talking about last week. Forget about the last couple of years. Couple that with the fact that our culture has decided to reject the existence of God, either explicitly or implicitly, and accept the myth that we weren't purposefully created, we weren't specially designed, but we're basically cosmic accidents. There is no ultimate meaning or ultimate purpose according to those who reject God. There is no ultimate why in regards to why anything happens. It's only that we're here. So if you get sick, stop trying to figure out the ultimate why. Deal with it. You're just sick. If you lost a loved one to an evil person, like so many people did last week in Uvalde, Texas, there's no ultimate reason why that happened. It just happened. You just got a bad luck of the draw. See, with that being the worldview that so many people in our culture has, it should come as no surprise why we see anxiety on the rise, why we see drug overdose on the rise, why we see suicide attempts on the rise. See, when you reject God and you reject him who gives meaning and purpose even to tragedies, you are not going to be able to make sense of tragedies and trials when they come. Now, fortunately for us, we have not rejected God. We do know that he exists and that not even one subatomic particle can move apart from his holy will. However, even though we understand that, that does not negate the fact that we still suffer through trials like the rest of mankind. The only difference is that we can look to God, we can look to his word, we can seek after him in prayer and gain an understanding as to why trials are happening. So since we have the benefit as children of God to look through his word, that's what we're going to do today and Lord willing over the next few weeks. So let's go ahead and let's start examining today. We're going to just look at two of the reasons why trials happen. And let's start with the one that is probably the, you know, the, the reason why most people don't want to consider or think about. And the fact and reality that we may have sinned and we may have strayed away from God's law. Now, I wanted to start here because although obviously we're reformed and we understand that not all affliction is the result of sin. I mean, all you got to do is just think back to um, um, Jesus when he was talking to the Pharisees about the man who was born blind. He specifically said it wasn't because this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that's so that my glory can be shown through him. So we know that not all affliction is a result of sin, but we can't forget that sometimes the reason for affliction is because of sin that we commit. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28. We're going to be reading from verses 58 through 61. Now, if you want to get the full context for this section, you really do want to start in verse 15, but in the interest of time, we're just going to read from verses 58 through 61. And listen to what Moses says here. If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which, not written in the book of this law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. So we see in this passage, before Israel enters into the promised land, that God, through the prophet Moses, warns them that a failure to keep God's law will result in severe plagues, chronic illnesses. If you go back to verse 15 and read all the way through, you also see that God warns them that he'll even send foreign nations to conquer them. They won't benefit from the fruit of their labor, that they will be a horror to the nations around them. All a direct result of disobedience, 
to God's law. The psalmist writes in Psalm 107, verse 17, Fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Hear that? Because of their rebellious way, because of their sin, they were afflicted. Psalm 119, verse 67. Pastor Jason last week brought this verse up. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Again, Pastor Jason brought this verse up last week, but it bears repeating. See, David writes that before God afflicted him, he was going astray. He was not holding to God's law. The path that God called David to walk was not the path at that point in time that he was walking. And as a result, God afflicted him. Now, we don't know what that affliction was. We only know that he was afflicted. In the same manner, God will sometimes send affliction on us as Christians because we are straying away. Or to put it another way, God is disciplining us as a good father does and should. The reason for him doing so is not because he's sadistic. It's not because he wants to see us in misery or in pain, but because, again, he is our heavenly father. And as such, he wants for us to walk according to his law. He wants us back on the right path. And if he sees that we are straying away, what does a good father do? Discipline their child to ensure that they now go back on the path that they ought to. And David realizes this. We see this because if you look at verse 71 of Psalm 119, he says this. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It is good that I was afflicted. He calls the affliction good. Now, if I had to guess, David probably was not thinking that in the middle of the affliction, in the middle of the trial. My guess is, like most kids, if you were to ask your child, as you know, right in the middle of you disciplining them, hey, do you think this is good? I'm going to venture to say that they're probably going to be like, no, this is like the worst thing ever. Like, why are you asking me this? So much in the same way, I'm sure as David was afflicted, he did not see that it was good. But as he's able to look back and see how God was able to use that to correct him, now he's able to proclaim that that affliction was good. If God chooses in his sovereign will to discipline you through affliction, know that it is good. It may not seem good in the moment, but it's ultimately good. The reason that it's good is because that discipline is what causes you to pivot back to the narrow road. Let's look at an example in the scriptures, of a person who was straying away, and then God chose to discipline him to bring him back. Turning your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We're going to read the first 17 verses. We're going to look at the account of King Manasseh, son of Hezekiah. So again, this is 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We're going to read the first 17 verses. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image of the idol, which he made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. 
and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them according to all the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. Then thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. Now listen to this in verse 12. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now, after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gahan in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he encircled the Ophel with it and made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thanks offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. So we see here, when Manasseh becomes king, he immediately negates all the good things that his father, Hezekiah, did. He sets up altars to Baal. They worship Baal and Asherim and other fake gods. He practices witchcraft and sorcery. He even builds idols and altars and puts it in the holy temple. To top it all off, he burned his sons as an offering. So, needless to say, this guy strayed away from the law of God in many a different ways. Well, what does God do as a result of his complete departure from him? He disciplines him. He brings about affliction on Manasseh and Israel in the form of another country, Assyria, coming in, defeating them, and capturing Manasseh. And because Manasseh was full of pride, God humbled him. And it was in that humiliating affliction that Manasseh realized how far he had strayed from God. As a result of God bringing upon Manasseh that affliction, Manasseh learned his lesson. He course corrected. He literally reversed course on every wicked thing that he did. Sometimes God has to humble us like Manasseh in order for us to understand how much we've strayed from him. Now, you would love to think that all we had to do was just read his word, learn it and understand it, and follow it. But sadly, so many of us, and I put myself as one of these people, we can be hard-headed. Sometimes, unfortunately, we read and we see what the Bible says, but, you know, it just feels a lot better just to kind of do our own things. And then God, seeing that, man, you know what? JP is being a little hard-headed here. You know, let's throw some affliction on him. Maybe that will course correct him. Sometimes God will send about affliction to humble you in order to cause you to reflect, to cause you to look at how, what have I done wrong, and to repent. First Peter Chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. Let's continue along the same theme in regards to sometimes the problem being us. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, we see Peter writing this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And listen to this in verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Hmm. 
Now, if you know the um, this letter, the um, First Peter, Peter spends the entirety of this letter instructing the saints in Rome who are being persecuted how to live as believers in an ungodly environment. These believers were suffering a lot and were being persecuted because of their faith. Now, if you know your early church history, you know why. Around this time, so there was the great fire in Rome. And the emperor of that time, Nero, placed the blame of the fire on the Christians. And as a result, they were persecuted. Many suffered and many died. So this is why Peter writes this letter to them, to encourage them as well as to instruct them. But we see in chapter 4, verse 15, that he makes this very interesting point. He basically tells them, listen, y'all are going to be enduring a lot of suffering as believers here in Rome. Since this is going to be a reality, don't let the suffering be because you are doing something idiotic. Don't let the suffering be because you're a thief, you're a liar. You're a murderer. You're a meddler. See, whether we like to think about it or not, sometimes the suffering we endure is because of us. As Christians, sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes we, we have the tendency to assume that the persecution and the difficulties that we are dealing with are the result of just living for Christ and not because, you know what? No, you're just in sin. Sometimes we suffer because we do foolish things in a way that justly brings about affliction on us. I'm sure we've all known of that person where, you know, they're wondering, why don't I have like a lot of friends? You know, it's like, you know, I have these friends and the next thing you know, you know, they're, they're gone. And in their minds, they're thinking, well, you know, I'm just a principled person. And, you know, these people aren't principled. And in reality, it's like, nah, it's not because you're, you know, principled. It's because you're kind of a jerk. And you probably just want to check, check on that first before you start thinking that the problem is other people. I do think it's very important for us in the midst of any trial or affliction to examine yourself, to honestly search your heart, to see first and foremost, is the problem really out there? Is the problem you? Now, again, there are many other reasons why trials happen, but I think it's important that we ponder on that first. Start with you. Are you in sin? And is this God's punishment? Are you straying from God's law? Has pride so blinded you, and now God is trying to humble you? Are you treating others with love? Are you treating others biblically? I love how our confession of faith in chapter 5, the chapter on providence, section 5, how they summarize this. They say, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. Sometimes God will leave you in the situation to humble you, to force you to examine yourself, to force you to search your heart. Are you in sin? The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If God doesn't discipline you, you're not one of his children. So again, like David, it is good that you are afflicted. If you're being afflicted by God, praise God, because you're one of his children. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us 
for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So why does discipline happen? Why does trials, affliction happen sometimes? To build you up in holiness. To remove all that sin that you're still clinging on to that God does not want for you to cling on to. He's trying to make you holy. First Thessalonians tells us, for this is the will of God for your life. What is it? Your sanctification. How does God sanctify you? Well, sometimes he's going to have to discipline you. If God is truly our Heavenly Father, then that means that He will not hesitate to discipline us as a good father. Again, for those of us who are parents, we know that the purpose for punishing our children is not because we are sadistic, but because we see them sinning and we want to correct them. It would be silly. Think about this. It would be silly for our kids if we were disciplining them. And then next thing you know, they were like, they saw their discipline as essentially them being a martyr for a good cause. No kid does that. A kid understands that they're being disciplined. Gosh, man, I got caught. I did something bad. Likewise, we need to seriously examine ourselves. Again, I am not saying, and then we'll see this as we get to the next point here, I'm not saying that all affliction is because of sin. But I am saying we should examine ourselves because it could be because of sin. I mean, we read this every time we do the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you. Why? Is it because they were on fire for God? Is it because they were living so righteously for God and that's why they were weak and sick? No! It is because of the fact that they were sinning. They were sinfully partaking of the Lord's Supper and then God brought affliction on them. God was punishing them. So sometimes... When we see that we are in the midst of trials or affliction, don't forget, yes, you, are, you may be in Christ. Yes, you are walking in holiness, but you are not perfected yet. You don't have your glorified body yet. So guess what? That means, yeah, you're still a sinner. You're still going to fall short. So examine yourself. Be humble enough to examine your own hearts, to see if there is any hidden sin that needs to be repented of. It's humbling. This is probably not the, you know, the most comforting of things to think about when you're in the middle of affliction. But guess what? God is about making you holy. And if he has to punish you and bring about trials and affliction to make you holy, then he will. And when he gets the result that he desires and you are now back on the right path, then you, like David, can proclaim that affliction was good. Thank you, God, for applying that affliction on me. Thank you, God, for disciplining me because I was going astray and now I am no longer. So, one of the reasons, again, is because we may be in sin and God is disciplining us. Let's look at the next point that we'll look at today. This will be the last point that we look at today. You know, another reason why we may deal with trials or affliction is because God may be testing us. You know, sometimes in order for the genuineness of, our, of our, the faith, the purity of our faith to truly be made manifest or for our faith to grow strong, Sometimes God has to put us through trials. And again, those trials aren't because God wants to see us groan or complain, but rather he wants us to become steadfast and strong in our faith. The Apostle James writes in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, faith produces endurance. 
and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith produces endurance. James says to consider it all joy when we encounter trials. See, so often we want to complain and groan when difficulties come because, I mean, to be honest, they do suck. But James tells us that it is those trials that test our faith that produces endurance. So most of you know that I like to run. I'm an avid runner. I've been running since I've been 18, since I was 18 years old. And I've been running basically for almost 17 years now. And because of the fact that you know, I've been running for, I guess, pretty much half my life, it's second nature for me to, to be able to run at a decent pace without thinking about it. There are times when I run with someone who may not be a runner, and I'm running at a pace that, to me, seems relatively slow, but to the other person, they're about to have a heart attack. And over the years, the constant pushing of myself in running produced in me an endurance that, for me, makes it easy to run without getting tired. And trust me, I was not born a runner. I had to work at becoming a runner. And likewise, those trials that you go through as a Christian is what produces the spiritual endurance to continue to push forward in future trials. In your mind, you may believe that you trust God with all your heart until you're forced to actually have to trust God with all your heart. For example, you might think that you do trust God for your daily bread. And then you lose your job. And then now you really have to trust God for your daily bread. Now, at first, it may be very difficult and painful to deal with. Just like the first time you try to run two miles. But after going through that pain and seeing the faithfulness of God in action, your faith grows stronger. And there really is no better feeling than enduring a difficult trial and coming out of that trial through the hand of God. It encourages you. It motivates you. It strengthens you because now you see the hand of God at work. It is those trials that strengthen your faith. If you just so happen to be in a similar situation, you're not going to panic. You're not going to be fearful or worrisome. Why? Because you've been through it. You know that God is going to take care of you because he already did it. I love what Matthew Henry says here. Matthew Henry writes, strong faith is often exercised with strong trials and put upon hard services. Strong faith is often exercised with strong trials. You want to get big, strong muscles? Well, you're going to have to lift some big and strong weights. Does it come easy? 1 Peter 1, chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter tells us in this passage that the various trials that the persecuted church was dealing with is meant to show the genuineness of their faith. See, there are so many people, especially when times are good, that have no problem claiming to be a Christian. It's easy to be a Christian when everything is good. But how many of those same people will continue to walk with Christ if it costs them something? How many so-called Christians are willing to risk their family, their job, or even their life for the sake of Christ? See, many a times, 
Trials are God's way of weeding out the faithful from the pretenders. The diamonds from the cubic zirconia. Just like when you put gold through a fire to test its purity, God oftentimes will, figuratively of course, put us through the fire to test the genuineness of our faith. Proverbs 17, verse 3, Solomon says that the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to read. This is a very, very familiar par uh, parable to all of us here. This is the parable of the sower. And we're going to read verses 3 through 9, and we're going to read also verses 20 to 21, which really deals in the area that I want to talk about. So let's first start in, again, chapter 13 in the book of Matthew, verses 3 through 9. And Jesus spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came up and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the ground, on, on, on the good soil, and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And listen to the explanation for the part that I want to, to look at, the seed that I want for us to look at. This is in verse 20 of chapter 13. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately falls away. So we see in this parable that Jesus has given us an example of a person who professes to be a Christian, but falls away as soon as persecution comes, as soon as affliction comes. Especially in this day and age of ours, we have been way too coddled and way too comfortable. The Christian life for so many people isn't that hard at all. For many, it's a life of ease and comfort. And you have many pretend so-called preachers who even teach that being a Christian and having faith means that you're going to get all the good things in this life. You're going to have your best life right now. Being a Christian puts you on the fast track for health and wealth because you have God as your personal gene. He is your butler. Sadly, what happens so often when people think this way and the realities of life hit them, they can't reconcile their Christianity that they were sold with what they're actually having to deal with. So instead of going to the word and seeing, well, what does the Bible actually say here? They walk away from the faith. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the book, Pilgrim's Progress. Probably, next to the Bible, one of the most read Christian literature books of all time. And in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with it, then you know it's the story of a man named Christian who is going from his old city, City of Destruction, to the Celestial City. Now, in the very beginning of the Pilgrim's Progress, as he's living, leaving the City of Destruction, two people come to him to try and stop him, obstinate and pliable. Now, obstinate, like his name, obstinate, being hard-headed, decided, you know what? You're just being way too, way too stubborn. I'm going back to the City of Destruction. Pliable, on the other hand, here's what Christian is saying and says, man, this sounds very good. Hey, I'm going to follow you. So Christian and Pliable start walking together. And Christian is talking to Pliable about all the good things that they're going to have when they get to the Celestial City. And Pliable gets excited. It's really excited about getting to go into the Celestial City. As they're talking, you know what happens? They fall into the slough of despond. Or to put it in modern English, the swamp of despair, where they're drowning and covered in, in the swamp and having a difficult time getting out. Well, for Pliable, you know what? That, that was it. 
Like as soon as he went into the swamp of despair, he told Christian, man, if this is, if this is what it's like to be a follower of this king of yours, count me out. I would much rather go back to the city of destruction. And that's exactly what he did. And like pliable, we have so many so-called Christians who follow God for the blessings and the benefits, but they can't handle the affliction that also comes with those blessings. Very few of us can respond like Job did after he lost his wealth, his children, even his health, and then his own wife decides to chime in and be like, curse God and die. Very few of us can respond like him, where he said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? That's a very hard thing to say after you lost all your kids, after you lost all your wealth, and then your wife decides to become a nagger, basically, and nagging. But then Job understood. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, even Solomon says, in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. He made both. You may not like the adversity, but the same God who prospered you is the same God that is humbling you right now through your adversity. Now, if you thought that God was your genie, then yeah, you're going to be upset when God gives you adversity. However, if you understand that both the blessings and the trials come from God, then your faith is not going to be destroyed on account of that affliction. Let's take a look at an example of a man who was tested pretty, you know, pretty, pretty good by, by, by God. And I'm talking about Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. This is the account of him offering up his son Isaac to potentially be sacrificed. So we're going to read the first 12 verses here. Now, it came about after these things. Again, this is Genesis chapter 22. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. So this was a three day journey. Abraham said to his young men, stay there or stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from Again, this is a pretty well-known story, the story of Abraham and Isaac, and in particular, God testing him. As we know, Isaac was the child that God promised to Abraham. Now, God wants for Abraham to sacrifice him? Now, you want to talk about a test of someone's trust in God. This is a test of someone's trust in God. But there is something else here that ties in with our faith that is also being alluded to here. And it's our commitment to obeying God. This is the test. 
that he's dealing with here. To kind of bring that point, let's look at quickly just a couple of passages. 1 John 2, verses 4 through 5. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And then we have 2 John verse 6. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Abraham was given a command. And if he truly loved God, he would obey that command. However, he also loved his son. As God stated, his only begotten son. I mean, this was the son that God promised to him. If he dies, so what happens to God's promise that all the nations will be blessed through him? To top it all off, see, this sacrifice was not something that just happened immediately after God gives it a command. Abraham and Isaac went on a three-day journey to the place where he was going to be offered up. So for three days, Abraham has this thought running through his mind that he's going to have to kill his son. Does he obey God and sacrifice his son? Or does he disobey God and protect his son? What Abraham decides to do ultimately shows who is ultimate in his life. If Abraham has really placed God as primary in his life, no other thing will ever supersede that. God's command will always trump everything else. If God wasn't first and primary in his life, then he will choose to disobey God for whoever is primary or whatever is primary. Let me ask each one of you this question. How often are you, are we willing to disobey a command of God for the sake of someone we love? When we do that, we are demonstrating that God is not first in our hearts, but other people. Matthew Henry writes in commenting on this passage here, God's command must not be disputed, but obeyed. We must not consult with flesh and blood about them, but with a gracious obstinacy persist in our obedience to them. If you want to be obstinate, you be obstinate in keeping God's law. You be stubborn there. Many times, obeying God will be the hardest thing for us to do. It will many a times go against our desires. It will go against what, in our finite minds, seems rational or logical. We may have to suffer internally or even externally for obeying God. We might potentially lose our job, our relationship, our security, and many other countless things. But in the end, our commitment to keeping God's law and putting God first in our lives will always prove to be worth it. That's what happened with Abraham. We see, so if we continue on in Genesis 22, and let's take a look at verse 15 through 18. Listen to what is written. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So rather than this day, which I'm sure Abraham thought was going to be a day of sorrow for him, turns into a day of great rejoicing. God reiterates his promise to Abraham. Had Abraham disobeyed God, those blessings would not have been restated to him. Now, while Abraham obviously did not earn his salvation with his obedience, he did demonstrate clearly that the faith that he professed was actually a faith that he truly did possess. 
John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, he writes this. He says that the Lord indeed is so indulgent to our infirmity that he does not thus severely and sharply try our faith like he did Abraham. And thank God he doesn't. Thank God we just get to read this and then we don't actually get to deal with what he did. Yet he intended in the father of all the faithful to propose an example by which he might call us to a general trial of faith. For the faith which is more precious than gold and silver ought not to lie idle without trial. And experience teaches that each will be tried by God according to the measure of his faith. At the same time also, we may observe that God tempts, and by tempts he means tests, of course. God tests his servants, not only when he subdues the affection of the flesh, but when he reduces all their senses to nothing, that he may lead them to a complete renunciation of themselves. So many a times, if you are in Christ, if you have faith, for that faith to grow strong, you may have to go through a trial, a testing. Now never forget what our chief end is. It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's all about God. Do we really love him? Do we really trust him? Do we honestly believe his promises? See, those trials that we go through help us to see whether that is the case. And again, um, Calvin writes, As Abraham showed that he feared God by not sparing his own and only begotten son, so a common testimony of the same fears required from all the pious and acts of self-denial. Are you truly faithful? Do you truly reverence God? Is he truly ultimate in your life? While we may not be called to sacrifice our children, all of us who are believers will at some point in our lives be called to sacrifice something in the name of our faith. We will be tried. We will be tested. In the New Testament, we have an example of a person who was not willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ the rich young ruler. He claimed that he kept all the commandments of God. Now, while in his mind, he might have thought that he did that, when the time came for him to let go of his riches, to follow the pearl of great price, he was not willing to do that. He ultimately demonstrated that there was something that mattered more to him than Jesus, and that was money. Likewise, For us believers, if we claim that God is ultimate in our lives, God may decide to put that to the test. You may have to part with money or your job, friends, family members, maybe even a church or any other number of things to demonstrate that your primary allegiance is to God alone. I mean, Jesus himself tells us in Luke 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, he is using hyperbolic language here. He's not calling for us to hate our family members, but rather he's saying that if you love these people more than me, you are not worthy of me. If you put them as primary over me, then you're not worthy of me. You cannot be my disciple. I must be first. That's what Abraham had to figure out and realize that was the point of the test. This is your begotten son, your promise, and this is the son that you got in your old age. But I'm God. Who's more important to you? Now, I am not saying that going through something even somewhat close to what Abraham did will be easy. But see, our response to the trials that we go through is the proof of our faith. It demonstrates to us and to the world that what we outwardly claim is what we truly inwardly believe. I mean, James tells us in James 2 verse 18, but someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith 
by my works. So let's bring all of this to a close for today. So we saw how the trials, the tests, the afflictions, and the persecutions that we go through is not something that is without meaning or purpose. See, because God providentially preserves, governs, and controls all things, that means that even those difficult times in your life are meaningful and not meaningless. Now, we only had time today to look at just two of the reasons why trials happen, but I do hope that the two reasons that we looked at today will force you to, one, examine yourselves in light of God's word, and two, examine the scriptures to see what other reasons are there that the scriptures supply us with why trials happen. Now, we will in future weeks look at other reasons why trials happen, but for now, over the course of the next week, meditate on what we talked about today. If you are dealing with a trial, Examine yourself first to see if you're in sin. As we saw in the scriptures, affliction can be the result of unrepentant sin. So examine yourselves. And if there is sin that you're indulging in, repent. See, the beautiful thing about God is that he is a merciful God. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5, David writes, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So our God is merciful. He's long suffering. If you are in sin, repent. Now, if after examining yourself, you can honestly state that there isn't some glaring sin that you are continuing in, then consider whether the affliction, the trial, is a test of your faith. Remember, we just saw God oftentimes will test us in order to strengthen and confirm our faith. So I guess ultimately, don't allow for those trials and those afflictions in a case like this to cause you to fall into despair. Again, we only saw two of the reasons today, but what is clear is that our God, being a providential God, being a God who controls and governs all things, even to the most minute of things, again, as Jason alluded to last week, not even the sparrows fall apart from the will of God. So then we know that the affliction, that the trials are meaningful. So remember that God is in control of it. And understand that there is a reason behind it. So again, examine yourself. Check to see if you're in sin. If not, this may be a test. Are you willing to be committed to him? Will you allow for the trial to cause you to curse God and die? Or are you willing to endure, to stand firm, to know and understand that the God who made all things is near to you and loves you and will see you through it and has not abandoned you, but is there? There's, I'll never forget this. I remember the first time that I went to General Assembly, um, Bill Higgins um, preached, and then he quoted D. James Kennedy, and was, he said this, which again, I'll never forget. He said, all of life is a school, and every day, and in each school, there's many different classes, and in all the different classes, the lesson is the same. 
Do you trust God? Now think about that. Do you trust God? Are you going to trust him during this period of trial, of testing, of affliction? Or will you allow for the affliction to cause you to curse God and die? Think about that. So with that being said, let's now go to the Lord our God in prayer.